Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cathedral of St. James podcast. The episode you're about to listen to is a conversation with Dr. Mahan Mirza on division and dialogue between religions. Dr. Mirza is the executive director of the Ansari Institute for Global Engagement with Religion at the University of Notre Dame. We are so grateful for Dr. Mirza's time and expertise in leading this discussion. The conversation was part of a six-week series in spring of 2021 titled From Division to Dialogue, Working Towards Life Together. In the series, we discussed what divisions we saw in our communities, from faith to politics to race, and the barriers to life together that have resulted. And we asked the questions, what's at the root of these divisions? Given the divisions, how do we even approach dialogue? Are there any current examples of dialogue that can serve as a model for addressing these divisions? And finally, what is the end or purpose of dialogue? We hope you enjoy the following conversation with Dr. Mirza. Thanks for listening. All right, so as you can imagine, they begin with definitions. I mean, what is religion? And every uh, scholarly conversation has, you know, defining your terms at its core. So we act, at least know what we mean by the terms we're using. So when we say use the term religion, what is it that we mean? And they obviously go through the history of people who've <laughs> talked about religion from different perspectives. So uh, Freud is an important figure who views religion as a kind of obsessional neurosis. He particularly looks at ritual and repetition and says it's these repressed uh, feelings that we've had since childhood that gives birth to religion. So his metaphor is like uh, religion is like an illness. Okay. And so modernity, as it was encountering all new forms of knowledge, developing new cosmologies, uh, and new physics, uh, they were also, also rethinking the nature of religion and were doing it in highly critical ways. Uh, Marx, you know, the, the, is the opium of the masses. So he sees religion as a kind of drug, a narcotic to pacify people so that they can be controlled and ruled over by elites. This is a simplification, but y- y- I'm sure you've, you've heard and seen the variations of these. Durkheim, uh, he sees it as a social system of beliefs and practices. And so you see, really see the birth of the sociology of religion, where you study not necessarily a religion through the texts that authoritative figures read and interpret, but through the practices of people in lived communities. And then people like Rudolf Otto and others, uh, William James, who see religion as a, a, an experience that transforms an individual with like the ultimate reality, um, a higher power gives you a a mystical and transformative experience. Schleiermacher, maybe Hume, you know, who who say religion is all about feelings. With Hume, it was about, you know, dealing with anxieties. With someone like Schleiermacher, it was was just a feeling of absolute dependence. And that's where really the definition of religion should lie. And someone like Paul Tillich, who, who says it's an ultimate concern. And so what is your purpose in life? Uh, where are your ambitions? How are you fulfilling them? And that's really where we find um, religion 
ultimately lies. So they go through these and they're, uh, I've just picked a few by way of illustration. So you get an idea of the depth and uh, uh, variety of definitions that are out there. Scholars don't agree, they still continue to hash this out. But our two scholars, I'll give you theirs. This is um, the definition given by Tom Tweed, who studies material culture and Buddhism. He went extensively in that. And then he studied the lives of migrant communities from Cuba in Florida. And given, you know, these, mainly these two studies, and obviously his encyclopedic understanding of religion, he, he boils it down to this. Religions are confluences of organic cultural flows that intensify joy and confront suffering by drawing on human and suprahuman forces to make homes and cross boundaries. So I'm going to pause here and invite your <laughs> reflection on this particular definition, and then we'll do the second one by Christian Smith, and then I have a few more points before I get to the scriptural reference where we'll formally end the presentation and then have a, a second round of discussion. So any thoughts what do you see here with this definition? I don't see God, unless we're talking about superhuman forces. <laughs> Excellent. Why do you think that that choice of word was made? To make it sound more scholarly. <laughs> that's that's one reason but um so is god a superhuman force um that's not an adequate definition of god but it it could allude to god yeah does anyone want to take a stab at why that word may have been used I wonder if he was trying to come up with something that would apply across all sort of definitions, feelings, impressions of religion, because I, like you said, you're going to be focusing on the Abrahamic religions, which we have a personified God that, that we relate to, but that's maybe not necessarily the case in all religious systems. Right, right. So Buddhism, for example, uh, or Hinduism, right? where, say, take a concept such as dharma or karma was more familiar to us, like this cause and effect, where there is something that is a force in the universe that really orders our, our life, our religious life and cosmology. And what it says is if you, your actions have consequences in the next life, right? And that principle is built on an idea of a force that's not of human origins. It's super or superhuman, right? But it's not a personal God. And so a definition like this has to account for everything that we understand to be religious. And so in order to make it inclusive and not exclusive, if a God is mentioned, then it would exclude uh, some uh, some religions 
So that's a great observation. You saw the superhuman and no God. Anything else? Anyone notices? I was really struck by the intensify joy and confront suffering. So that emotional response is something inherent in religion. Yeah. So he captures that feeling aspect that it both, you know, celebration, festivals, um, um, birth, marriage, sacraments around you, those that really give life its fullness, but also death <coughs> and l loss, right? The definition encompasses those and really as being a kind of Cent the, the, the definition is centered around those, those two words. They intensify joy and confront suffering in the sense they, that gives us meaning. Okay, great. You're hitting the key pieces. Anyone else? Something that either strikes you as interesting or just utterly strange. I, what, what I like the idea of cross of making homes and crossing boundaries, um, and the the idea that it. Well, I don't like Freud's definition at all as an illness, uh, and this one is is more of what I think of a world religion is, is that it is centered in the home. And it does cross boundaries. It ties us to. I look at religion that is is a, a binding force, mm. as well as unfortunately, a, a splintering one. Wow, you've actually anticipated exactly where we're going with the division and dialogue. So hold that thought. But uh, yeah, making homes that was important for him to include especially when he's looking at migrant communities. So there's an idea of religions on the move, it's crossing boundaries, but it's also trying to find a place and settle and in whatever situation it finds itself in to make meaning. He also explains this. He said he liked, he liked this metaphor of a home, making a home, because we often think of religions as very hierarchical and institutional, but... Um, and masculine, but homemaking, you know, can also imply family, and it just is more, more inclusive, even in a gendered sense. Crossing boundaries also can be in an ultimate, can be interpreted, you know, in this world uh, in all kinds of ways, but also crossing the ultimate boundary, the threshold to the other world. Stephen, you were going to say something. Yeah, uh, well, we've touched on a lot of the definition, but the first, the, that very first phrase, religions are confluences of organic cultural flows. Right. That's, that's really curious. Um, it, it, is that just maybe a way of saying that uh, religions take place in context um, yeah. and, um, you know, interact with the cultures around them and are maybe influenced and influence those cultures? That's it. And so, a, and a confluence is, he, he looks at it quite literally um, as a metaphor for water that flows. And so, where, you know, two rivers come together. 
or part, they're tributaries, and then there are branches of rivers. And so re religion is not something that's static, it's flowing. And um, it, you know, uh, it, it, it changes over time and evolves. And it consists of, you know, living things like organic, the bodies, it's, it's an embodied thing uh, where, you know, it's, it's not just simply an idea or something abstract, but it comes to life uh, in our bodies, how we practice through our uh, motions, our genuflections, our rituals, but also in, in addition to the biology, it's cultural and, and social and collective. So you have that, you know, the social system aspect. So these are, you, you can see, you know, initially when you look at the definition, it's a bit overwhelming, but uh, he's trying to really capture uh, the idea comprehensively. And so anyone who's looking into religion and what it is can look at this definition and see, well, does it qualify? And so there are a lot of things that are quasi-religious. He gives the example of... Um, Alcoholics Anonymous, I believe, where they appeal to a higher power. They have a pathway, like, you know, a 12-step program. But they may, they may not have an ultimate threshold. They're trying to get to a place of sobriety and happiness. But it lacks ultimacy, you know. Um, and so maybe it's, it, has, it has many elements of religion. It can be seen as religious, but could be quasi-religious. And then there are other entities that uh, can have religious uh, qualities, uh, even many ideologies like capitalism, for example, or, uh, or communism. And then they have rituals, you know, uh, associated with them in, in civil religion, uh, sports, but they're lacking other elements. So they, they, they are things that are quasi-religious, but will fall short of being actually religion. Let's go, let's look at the second definition. Uh, this one is by Christian Smith. It's a bit longer. He's a sociologist. So you can see that he begins with practices, right? Religion is a complex of culturally prescribed practices based on premises about the existence and nature of superhuman powers. So they're making the same move <laughs> using that term for the same reason we discussed. And he elaborates whether personal or impersonal. So a personal God would fit into this, but also it could be something natural that is uh, not generated by human beings or hasn't emerged from the collective behavior of human beings isn't an emergent property but exists as a superhuman power in an impersonal cosmic way which seek to help practitioners gain access to and communicate or align themselves with these powers and so you have to be aligned with um, the will of god for example in in Islam and be in submission to him in hopes of realizing human goods and avoiding things bad. So <laughs> perhaps the intensified joy and confront suffering aspect uh, falls within that. 
He uses slightly different language, but you can see a number of the similar, similar elements there and some differences perhaps. I'll allow you a moment to react or respond to this if you like. I like the part about gain access to and communicate or align themselves with these powers because to me, um, like that captures the the desire in some religions to want that personal relationship um, with the object of your worship. Yeah, and he makes that ex explicit here, whereas in the other one, you know, it's not exactly spelled out, but it's not excluded either. Anyone else? I, I, what caught me was the religion is a complex of culturally prescribed practices. And I wonder if the prescribed practices might not be what sort of sends us into splinter groups within our own religion, denomination, and however far down you want to go. I, I mean, I, I speak um, like for many times, Christians don't follow the teachings of Christ. Like if we look at Matthew 25 um, and, and other, other religions say the same thing. This is not who we are. Yeah. And so what develops in one particular culture even though they might be reading the same text and inheriting the same tradition, may develop in a slightly different direction than what develops in another culture. And in time, those two can be saying different things perhaps or be at odds, right? Um, absolutely. So that, that makes it you know, situated in a particular social context. But maybe the one thing that I'll highlight myself is this idea that this alignment with these superhuman powers is taking place in an Abrahamic faith, um, in the cases of Abrahamic faith with a personal God, in hopes of realizing human goods and avoiding things bad. And so religion at its heart, there are certain things that goods that you cannot realize, but with through al alignment with the superhuman power, something at the heart of religion. And this really, this definition really helped me understand secularism from a certain perspective is when religious religion, both practice, the, the objects, the identification with the community, perhaps, it all becomes for the world only. And um, as, as an, perhaps an ornament or an adornment, a part of your identity, but the, the person thinks that they have all the means in the material world to realize whatever goods that they want to realize. And so once that, once that happens, you become secularized because you're no longer appealing <laughs> to the higher power, even though it appears that uh, from an outward ritual perspective, you might be part of a religion. And so that kind of inner uh, conviction 
that there is a higher power with which I must be aligned in order to realize certain goods as being at the core of, of religion that separates it from what's non-religion. Okay, so uh, I hope you found these definitions helpful and, and interesting. Um, I have this, I'm not going to be doing a lot of reading, but uh, just, just a couple of paragraphs. Why Religion Matters, both books talk about this, but um, uh, I picked this particular passage from Tom Tweed's book, who says, everyone who aspires to be an informed global citizen needs to understand religion. Doesn't matter whether you find religion compelling or if your nation seems to be more and more secular. What matters is that billions around the world practice a faith and that they act from it. And so religious literacy is just something that we need regardless of our own particular religious convictions. Like religious literacy is not just for the faithful, but it's important to be a global citizen because over 80% of the people of the world, they identify with a faith. Religion shapes how they enter the world and how they leave it, how they eat, dress, marry, raise their children. It shapes their assumptions about who they are, who they want to be. Religion also identifies insiders and outsiders, who has power, who does not. It both sanctifies injustice and combats it. It draws national borders. It affects law, economy, and government. It destroys and restores the environment. It starts wars and ends them. <laughs> and so this is the this is the the challenge, right? This is the messiness. Is some people will come to religion with the hope of restoration and healing and peace building. And others will use it to divide. And so how do we deal with this uh, double-edged aspect of religion? That's uh, where I will end today. But I want to also present, this is from the other book, where he talks about the causal powers of religion through the, this diagram of uh, a tree. And you can see that religion is really everywhere. Uh, at its roots, in a primary sense, it's the alignment with superhuman powers through our practices, for the sociologists, through the rituals. But then it's shaping our personal identity, you know, a, a group identity even. It's building community and communal solidarity um, and, it, and even social institutions. It gives us meaning in, a, in, a, in an ultimate sort of sense. Uh, theodicy helps us understand why there is good and evil and um, gives us our moral order a moral orientation in the world, even aesthetic and artistic expressions are stem from religious um, understandings. And then there can also be a, a means of social control. So there you have, if you, if you reduce religion to that, that's where you get your Marx, <laughs> Marxism, right? But uh, it's so much more than that, right? Um, and the regulation is both self internal re uh, regulation because of your own faith. I'm fasting right now. I can 
go and drink some water if I want. No one is stopping me. There's no authority and it's not a crime, but I don't do it, right? Because it's self-regulating. That's just a simple example. Um, but then there are also more formal mechanisms of control. Like if you're part of a religious institution with a hierarchy and teachings, and then there are consequences for violating. Um, and all the way to uh, different kinds of political legitimacy, right? Even I think when we talk about secularism, this idea that give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's is a kind of re religious theological legitimacy, legitimizing of um, our secular polity, right? So whichever way we look at it, uh, we're looking for these justifications from our faith and it's all encompassing. So um, when we go to dialogue and division, I have a few examples. Um, and I wanted to start with uh, Joe Biden, who is America's second Catholic president. Now, obviously this is something uh, to be celebrated for Catholics and is definitely celebrated at Notre Dame, um, which is the flagship Catholic institution for higher education in the nation, right? Every Catholic should, should be very proud of this. But wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Uh, there are places where Joe Biden goes and he's denied communion. And why? Uh, because uh, of his public support for abortion, for example. Right. So now you have, see, division. When we think of division, I bet you all were thinking bet between different religions, between Islam and Christianity, for example. I know that some of you, <laughs> some of you are looking also within religions. Uh, but here you have definitely a, a very interesting example of division within religion. And then the, the surveys indicate that the Catholic vote was split between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So you have the same religious tradition, even the same church, but completely different understandings on how that should be actualized in the political arena, for example, right? And so this is one thing I'd like you to think about when we think of division and then uh, how, how do we create dialogue, constructive dialogue across this division? So hold that thought. Let me give you another example. Now, when it comes to Muslims, um, you would think, well, of course, it's easier with Muslims. No, no one would vote for, who would vote for Trump after his Muslim ban? And his quote, Islam hates us. And so much of the support for Donald Trump coming from white evangelicals in a very kind of anti-Islam, anti-foreign or immigrant stance. But more Muslims voted for, for Trump the second time around than the first time, up to 35%, his support increased. And so even Muslims were divided not as much a 50-50 mark, up, it was 35% or so. And there's interesting indications within that data is 
because the Muslim demographic is also very diverse, is which groups within Muslims voted for Trump or tended to vote more for Trump than others. But their vote for Trump is understandable. A lot of Muslims are religiously conservative. They're very concerned with issues of religious freedom. These are things that Donald Trump championed. They want less of U.S. military involvement in lands that are Muslim majority. And when he was pulling out, those are things that did appeal to Muslims as well. So you can see what, what, do, you, what do you emphasize? Uh, what are your priorities? And suddenly things that we would think are no-brainers become a little bit more complicated. Here's another interesting uh, poll by the ISPU, Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. They, did a, uh, they do this annual poll uh, with all kinds of different interesting indicators. One of the things that they, they study is what they call an Islamophobia index, which is anti-Muslim sentiment. How widespread is it? If we can put it on a scale, where would we put it? And which groups are more or less Islamophobic? on this index. And the index has to have a few simple questions. So most, they ask people who they survey, most Muslims living in the United States are more prone to violence than others. How do you feel about this, yes or no, on a scale of one to five? Most Muslims living in the United States discriminate against women. Most Muslims living in the United States are hostile to the United States. Most Muslims living in the United States are less civilized than other people. Most Muslims living in the United States are partially responsible for acts of violence carried out by other Muslims. So they, they have this series of questions and guess which group is the most Islamophobic perhaps or on this index and which is least? Yeah, do you have a guess? Think of religious group, people who self-identify. <laughs> I shouldn't put you in this position. <laughs> Consider it a rhetorical question. Oh, somebody, ra you raised your hand. Uh, go ahead. Evangelical Christians are probably the most Islamophobic. Yeah. And uh, they, they, you know, particularly the white evangelicals, which was the strongest base for, for Donald Trump. They tend to be on the highest side. And what about on the lowest side? Jews. Wow, why would you say that? Because they themselves have been accused of some of the same things. Unbelievable, you're absolutely right. In fact, Jews are less Islamophobic than Muslims. There, people who took the survey who identify as Muslim rank just a bit higher. They have said themselves <laughs> internalized some of these things about their own community. I mean, they consume the same news and um, uh, maybe they tend to be more self-critical. But anyways, it's very interesting that um, we find uh, a group that many people think there's a hostility between Muslims and Jews, particularly because of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And the Israeli-Palestinian conflict you know, is a particular conflict.
conflict, and that has a certain context, but, um, and, and things that are definitely very complex, but that's not something that carries across uh, all sectors of experience. In fact, this is also very interesting. Uh, this is from the same report. Uh, Bernie Sanders, the only Jewish candidate, enjoyed more support among Muslims and the non-affiliated than he did with any other faith group measured. And if you look at the voting uh, data from places like Dearborn, Michigan, where high, there's high uh, concentration of Arab American Muslims, they went for Biden, yeah, I mean, for, for Bernie, <laughs> when they could vote for him. And so it's not the religion there that's guiding how people are voting, it's the policies, right? And uh, uh, they like what he, what he said and what he had to offer. So, okay, I thought you would find that interesting. Let me give you another example. Uh, this is uh, the phases of the moon. And you know, the Muslim calendar is determined by um, the cycles of the moon. And the lunar month is 29 or 30 days long. So the 12 months are about 10 or 11 days shorter than our uh, months that are on the Gregorian calendar. And so the Islamic calendar cycles back by 10 or 11 days every year. This is why Ramadan kind of rotates every 33 years across the calendar. And next year, it'll be a little bit sooner than it was this year. There's been a difference of opinion among Muslims <laughs> on when to start each month. Do you start the month? Initially, when I first came to the US about 20, 30 years ago, the debate was, you have to see the moon, someone in the community, there needs to be a credible sighting. Or you just go with your community, like you came from in Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or somewhere, they start the month, you start with them. And there were always these kind of two opinions that would go side by side. And you'd have people in the same community starting the month a day off. And then they would end the month a day off. So their festival, <laughs> Eid, would be a day off. Some people are celebrating, some people are still fasting and they celebrate the next day. And there was like, we, we need to have unity. And this is just crazy. And so uh, this debate raged. And then another group, this was the Islamic Society of North America. They took control of the debate and they said, look, we'll, we need to stop this. There also needs to be some predictability, right? Because if you don't know if the month is starting tomorrow, because you haven't seen the moon and it's like 9 p.m. and you won't see it until right after sunset and you need to let your boss know that tomorrow you need the day off. This is just, you know, kind of, we need more predictability in this kind of economy and society. And so they said, let's just calculate. Now we have science, you know, exactly where the moon is. And then others said, no, no, no. You know, they had science back then too. That's not the issue. It's an act of worship. And that uh, the specific wording says you need to sight the moon and the anxiety you feel not knowing is part of the religious experience. So there are all kinds of things Then don't get, you know, slave to the clock. So there was very interesting debates on both sides. And so the Islamic society, they pretty much prevailed and to establish unity, 
they went with the astronomical birth of the moon and then the uh, probability of sighting after that and they determined the calendar. And the year they did this, that was the first year we didn't have two starts to the month, but three. <laughs> I just like, you know, uh, it just blows my mind. And still we have this issue. Now we have typically two or three. Uh, occasionally everyone will be united where the ciders, everyone starts around the world on the same day. So, you know, there's, this is another kind of division. And um, some divisions, I think we need to just be okay with, right? Live with difference of opinion. Other divisions, we may need to negotiate and try to resolve. So maybe this one, they should have left alone and just enjoyed uh, the diversity of opinions, which is something um, that Jewish tradition is very uh, familiar with. I have this lovely book. It just came out. I recommend it. Can uh, Robots Be Jewish? And what it is, is it's a collection of um, short opinion pieces by rabbis of different denominations on interesting issues. At Moment Magazine, you know, ask the rabbi a question, and then they will get opinions from all these different rabbi rabbis and put them together. And they then collected some of these in this wonderful book, and it's got these different sections on science. The first question is, can a robot be Jewish? And it's a very interesting kinds of responses, right? So some would say, well, it's, it, the, it's not an issue of the robot. It's how you treat the robot, <laughs> right? Uh, and so it's more a reflection on you, especially if the AI is so advanced, right? Um, and then, you know, what does Judaism say about organ donation? Should we edit our children's genes? When does life begin? So this is a science then on sex, modern life, values, even politics, and the nature of the universe. Um, so there are different kinds of uh, categories of questions. And she quotes uh, in the introduction, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who wrote a lovely book in response to Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations after 9-11 on the dignity of difference. That to appreciate the multiplicity of human difference is itself a way to intuit the grandeur of God. So, you know, one thing to think about uh, divi division versus dialogue is sometimes we think that there's division when there's just difference. So, and we, and we divide unnecessarily where we should just let the difference kind of be there as something that's okay. Uh, the book begins with this, if you haven't heard it, I'll just mention it. I'm sure everyone here is familiar with the classical, you know, saying that whenever there's two rabbis, there's three opinions. Or was, was it that one? Or was it if, if, if a Jewish sailor gets stranded on an abandoned uh, island, desolate island, the, he'll be, build two synagogues, one in which he'll worship and one he will never set foot in. <laughs> And so this idea that the, that the tradition is just defined by difference, and that's a way that we, we appreciate God, though. It's not something to decry, but to even celebrate. Okay, I am 
winding down. I think I have just a couple of slides left. So uh, what religion does, there are many different things that religion does. You saw the tree, the causal powers of religion. But on cre religion creates social bonds. And he gives you this example from physics. You know, there's a cohesive bondage that's internal to the, to the um, substance or material. And then there's adhesion when you're sticking other things and it has a power to uh, be adhesive to the things that are outside of it. And so religions have this capacity where they form like sort of in-group solidarity, but they also need to have the capacity to relate to those who are on the outside. And sometimes different kinds of religious communities will uh, lose, uh, forget the balance. And so when inward looking groups face outward with fear or fury, they can become, to coin a term, dehesive. <laughs> if I read that correctly, it's his term. Uh, maybe you can say repulsive, right? Where they're no longer interacting in a healthy way with the out group. And this is a bond breaking social force. The history of religion provides myriad examples of volatile religious movements that overemphasized in group solidarity and escalated tension with outsiders. And so this is when you get division and that kind of division can often be destructive. And how do you manage that? That's something we can talk about, but I would argue one thing that's important to think about is the social conditions. So if the social conditions are such that the a, a dehesive group can be contained as a community, but doesn't define that, that the larger society, then you'll always have dehesive groups. But uh, if a dehesive group begins to move towards the center and becomes uh, centered within a society, then you can have a lot of uh, uh, problems. And um, I think e economics, uh, um, the material well-being of people, uh, their ability to participate, um, their feeling respected and dignified and not being feeling like they're being uh, berated or uh, dismissed because of their beliefs. Uh, these are all things that can uh, cause tension or remove tension. This is an example from South Africa. Um, during the anti-apartheid struggle, 150 theologians got together eventually and they condemned apartheid. And this is from Tweed's book. It was noted, it noted that this, this document noted that there were Christians on both sides of the conflict. Again, you have this, uh, an, a social movement for liberation and justice, but you have people on both sides of the same religion and identified three uh, theologies being expressed. And the same applies to Islam. There was a lot of interesting thinking that went on at that point in Islamic theology on who are our allies, who is the in-group really on these issues of justice. And um, they developed new alliances based on this struggle. So they identified three theologies. The state theology was one that was misusing theological concepts and biblical texts as it blesses injustice. Then there's the church theology, 
which was too passive, focused on individual conversions and failed to have the courage to affect real change. So didn't see the systemic problems. And then there's a prophetic theology, which the document endorsed, called for a liberation theology, focus, focused on uh, decisive action, including civil disobedience. A church that takes its responsibility seriously in these circumstances will sometimes have to confront and disobey the state in order to obey God. And you continue to see these <coughs> different expressions um, in different contexts and different justice movements. So this is my last slide. It's a verse from the Quran. And the we here is, in Muslim understanding, God speaking. So it's understood to be in the Arabic language, the royal we. God addresses himself as both singular and plural. And the interpreters obviously love to parse when is used, at which point and why. So here he says, we have assigned a law and a path to each of you. If God had so willed, he would have made you one community. But he wanted to test you through that which he has given you. So race to do good. You will all return to God and he will make clear to you the matters you differed about. It's a great last thought to end on. Thank you so much, Dr. Mir. So we'll let you go. It's 10 o'clock. Okay. Um, hopefully we'll have many more conversations, but really, really grateful for your time this morning. Thank you so much.